Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, that uh, it's never too late for mothers to uh, to grow and wake up, and uh, it's really fun. She's very funny. Uh, but I'm giving the talk tonight, Mom, so... Uh, <laughs> um, and today's a big day. She, she's up here for some dental work. She uh, had the first bite into an apple for the last year and a half. She's not been able to bite. Uh, right, so it's a big... It was a big day, so... Okay, well, let's see how much time we have here. So last week, for those who weren't here, uh, I was uh, exploring the, uh, this theme of, um, of craving, which in the Buddha's teachings is the cause of our suffering. It's the second noble truth. And moving from the cause of suffering craving to the end of suffering, which is the extinction of craving, this is the heart of what the Buddha was talking about. And last week, we explored in, in some ways uh, working a little bit with this. How many people were, uh, were working with it during the week? I am curious if you've, I remember I asked you to, you might just pick something and and play around with it. Anybody have a, any particularly um, um, relevant story or, or observation in their working with it that they've been practicing? Okay, I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot, but remember this is more than just entertainment. This is about applying it in your own life. Mm. And uh, what we talked about mm, uh, can be summed up in uh, that line by Viktor Frankl that in the space between stimulus and response lies the possibility of waking up and growth. We all can be very aware of our wanting and our craving causing suffering, but still we can be subject to these deeply held patterns. Uh, and it takes tremendous kindness and compassion to see that um, uh, the possibility of not being caught up in our habitual, hab habitual cravings and attachments. As I mentioned last week, uh, I think it starts with the intention to wake up, the intention to change. And we talked about um, surfing the urge when that urge comes and hanging out there with it and just seeing what goes on. The, uh, the issue, the inquiring mind issue, 
has lots of different articles uh, on various aspects of this and a few um, um, comments by this guy, Alan Marlett, who uh, has done a lot of uh, research from the University of Washington around addiction. And he talks about his method that he finds using mindfulness that he calls SOBER, which stands for stop, observe what's going on, breathe, just take a few moments to breathe, expand so you understand, if I do this, what will be the result? How will I feel afterwards? And then to respond wisely and to not be swept up by what is called um, the acronym PIG, the problem of immediate gratification, where you go for it and then you say, oh my goodness, how could I have done that again? And more and more learning the power of delayed gratification. Um, so I want to continue to explore tonight, and we'll look at a few articles that really struck me. Um, before I, we go into the articles, I want to uh, just again bring in some Buddhist teachings uh, in one discourse, uh, which is uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya, it's number 19, where he said before he was enlightened, he looked at his mind and he'd sit in meditation and he'd see there were a class of thoughts that whenever he would let himself get caught up by them, they would lead to suffering his own affliction, others' affliction, or both. And those class of thoughts started with thoughts of wanting. Wanting, um, ill will, and uh, aversion. Those three. And he said, every time I'd see myself getting caught up for this, the purposes of this talk in wanting, it was painful. And then there's a, a second class of thoughts that he said every time he would get, uh, he'd notice he'd be um, on that thought train, they led to uh, no one's affliction and to well-being. Those thoughts being um, non-ill will or kindness, non-cruelty or compassion, and non-desire or what is often translated as renunciation. That is, every time he saw a thought that had to do with letting go of the craving, letting go of the wanting in his mind, he said, it always felt good. So being very intelligent, he said, I made a decision to every time I'd see myself get caught in those un unskillful thoughts, that I'd let those go and I'd keep on cultivating the ability to not be caught in craving and to let go. Sounds pretty simple, kind of like what I was talking about last week. Okay, great, I got it. But it's so incredibly hard to overcome the conditioning. 
And one of the, one of the articles here that um, was, was very fascinating uh, was about how it works in our brains, the pleasure circuit in our brains. It's called the pleasure circuit. That's, and that's the name of the article. Um, Some from it. Fifteen, thank you. So, this is just the way the game is set up. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I'm not big on intelligent design, but there's some very interesting rules of the game that somehow we are needing to learn to play. That, I mean, it could have been that you get what you want, and you just say, ah, that's so nice. But that's not how the game is set up. It's set up so that when you get what you want, it feels so good, this is not even talking about substance abuse, but it feels so good that we get hooked into thinking, oh, that's where happiness lies. If I keep on manufacturing something that I want and then have that feeling of the end of that wanting, that that's what happiness is about. And so if I put those close enough together and keep on creating a desire and getting it gratified, that's happiness. I've won. It's just such an interesting curriculum that we're, that we're asked to explore because our brain circuitry actually is, uh, is supporting this insidious deception, particularly when it comes to substances that can be abused. Again, isn't it interesting that things that make us feel really good, you just can't have too much of them, whether it's Drugs or alcohol or uh, sweets or w w whatever it is, you know, it's like, oh, that's so good. More is better. But the way it works is that in the brain, in this pleasure circuit, the, the dopamine shoots out and, and everything in your body is saying, yes. Isn't life wonderful that I can feel this good? But that um, you need higher and higher levels of dopamine to get that same feeling. And actually then what happens is, particularly with substance abuse, and, and we have a, a substance abuse uh, expert here. I see Paul 
uh, Tull sitting right there, and he's worked with substance abuse for like what 25 years or 30 years. So if I if I please correct me if you if I if I say something that's completely off. And with the substance abuse, what happens is instead of going for the good feeling, at least according to this article, it becomes replaced by um, a negative feeling when you don't get the substance. So instead of saying, oh, this is going to feel so good, you're then motivated by, I feel really lousy, and I need this to just feel not lousy. And there's no end to that as the brain keeps on getting caught in that cycle. And what it also does is that you need more dopamine or whatever is giving you the, that high feeling to actually feel good, to go above the level of not feeling lousy, to feel good, which is what you want to go for anyway if you're, if you're in abuse, if you're, if you're in abuse. And so it just gets higher and higher. And another thing that happens is that your prefrontal cortex, which controls your judgment and controls uh, things like, um, uh, let me see what I put here, impulse control, cognitive flexibility, and general awareness, that all the executive functions are um, diminished, their capacity to see the bigger picture, are diminished as the abuse takes over. But what they also, what she points out, Kathleen Lustig, in this uh, article, is that mindfulness, um, they've been finding that mindfulness thickens the prefrontal cortex in, in things like the impulse control and judgment and general awareness, that as you practice, that area of the brain becomes um, stronger and thicker. And they haven't done that many research studies directly with addicts, at least according to her article, but it shows incredible promise for the power of mindfulness to, to um, change to give you choice, basically, to give you choice, which you don't really have when you're at the, in the grip of your, of your addiction. So that was anything, by the way, that you, that you want to add while I'm thinking about this, Paul? Chasing the first high. You're going after that big win. You know it felt so good, and you just keep on wanting to get back there. And you can't because of the way that it's set up. It's just uh, it's a futile endeavor. I'll just, just go through a, a couple of this, a couple of these, and then we can explore together. So another really fascinating article using mindfulness around craving is um, this article uh, called Know Your Hunger, an interview with Jean Christeller, uh, who heads the um, mindfulness-based eating awareness training. 
and it was, it was very compelling. There's a, a, um, a website, the Center for Mindful Eating, tcme.org, that has all of the research that they're doing and the way that they approach um, breaking um, food addictions and disorders. Uh, and this comes out of the John Kabat-Zinn work, and uh, they're incredibly successful. And what they found is with food, and I, I am not, I don't know other than what I'm reading in this, so I, you know, the, and there are people here who know a lot also about eating disorders, so I don't profess to be any kind of a, uh, an authority on it, and please, others can, can join in. But the things that struck me about the way that she and her group has approached eating and food as an addiction is uh, it's a little bit trickier than with other substances because we all need food. You can't say, oh, food is bad. If you, if you start thinking food is bad, then you're in, in trouble. We all need food, and, and there can be a value in, uh, in letting yourself enjoy food. It's a pleasurable kind of a thing. But in there, using the mindfulness to explore, what they do is they're interested in creating a relationship with eating that's not about a struggle, but finding a balance with food and eating in the context of open acceptance. And they say that it's important to be able, in their approach, to eat anything. And they go from, at first, um, very, uh, very small uh, portions of things and, and being very mindful in a very, very controlled environment and you go through the program and you end up going to an all-you-can-eat buffet as, uh, because you're desensitized, you're, you're, you're going, cutting through the triggers that usually um, are so compelling when there's food. And the key to it, at least the way I understand the article, Finding alternatives to eating when we're under stress. Because when we're stressed, in all of these cravings, we fall into habits that don't serve us. And finding, she says, finding your comfort foods and learning how to use them in a way that makes sense rather than eating them out of control, eating them to the point where you're out of control. And dealing with the self-hatred, the second dart in Buddhism, that comes when you say, oh, not only am I, you know, I, 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 this isn't good for me and I'm rotten for being in the grip of this craving. And they do a lot of work with forgiveness and self-touch and healing. But what one of their main techniques is learning to eat mindfully where you are present and really taste your food, where you savor it. Because what happens is that usually, and you don't have to be having an eating disorder to, uh, to know this. Uh, for me, I, I have to confess, 
popcorn is really, it's dangerous for me. I have a big bag of popcorn, and it's like, there I am, I'm gone. No. <clears throat> Unless I say, okay, I'm just going to measure out this much popcorn, you know, put the rest back. You're just kind of unconsciously putting this in, thinking that it's enjoyable, but actually you're not tasting the food. And they say, she says, if you really taste the food and savor it, slow down to the point where you're actually present for the pleasurable experience, you're not caught up in this unconscious habit. And I'll just read a little bit because it's, it's so cool. We refer to it as taste satisfaction. We ask them to eat a little bit and a little bit more and to really savor it. Physiologically, our taste buds habituate to flavors after a few bites. Research has shown that people with eating problems tend to be much less sensitive to this. So we ask people to eat slowly, fully savoring what they're eating, but stopping when the food doesn't taste good, taste as good anymore. Stopping when it doesn't taste as good anymore. You ever have a, uh, I talk about this all the time, uh, eating some ice cream, the first lick is so good, isn't it? You finally get your you know, Cherry Garcia or whatever. Mmm, yeah. The fourth or fifth lick is a very different experience. Then you're kind of spacing out, checking everybody around. And you because there you are, an automatic pilot. They say, stop when the food, they teach people to stop when the food doesn't taste as good anymore. We ask them to notice when their innate enjoyment meter has gone up as high as it is going to go. And when it starts to come back down again, to notice that. Typically, this might take only a couple of cookies or four or five corn chips. People are often amazed that I didn't stop because I thought I should, but because I realized I didn't want any more. That's radical. And what's the big secret? Being really present to your experience. Slowing down enough to just see what's going, what's going on. We see people dramatically shift in their experience of the very foods that had previously represented binge foods for them. And we also help people tune into stomach fullness because many overeaters are only aware of being empty and then being totally full. So we introduce a 10-point scale for fullness, with one being not full at all and 10 being as full as possible. And then people begin to notice that they often eat to a 9 or a 10. And they are encouraged to pick a number, you know, well, I'll eat till I'm at 6 or 7 you know, instead of like, full. And that has a huge effect. And then uh, just the last thing I'll read from this. We have a practice called mini meditation. We suggest that people stop, center themselves, and bring awareness to their thoughts, feelings, and experiences around an eating or food situation. 
such as sitting in front of a piece of chocolate cake or pizza. Pause and bring your awareness to your hunger and the degree to which it's about physical hunger or some other need for eating. Bring your awareness to your anticipation of eating that food to make a decision about how to relate to that food, whether to eat it or how much to eat. And once you start eating, to the experience of eating, such a mini meditation is the tool that people say is the most useful and the most powerful, and our research data supports that. <coughs> so, given that getting to our experience might not be food for you, it might, be, might not be particular substances for you, it might be behaviors that you want to give yourself some choice. I took actually a practice this week after I, I figured if I was going to ask everybody else, I'd better walk my talk. And um, so this is my practice. I'm, I'm being a little bit, um, I'm just saying this is me. Uh, I often eat and read. Mm. I mean, this is not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I know you were thinking, well, does he shoot up in the, in, in, in the back? But it's a, it's a habit that I, I've known for years is not a particularly healthy mindfulness practice. If I could be present for all the meals that I ate instead of reading the newspaper or whatever is around, you know, even if it's like you know, the circular from Whole Foods, you know, uh, I'd have a whole lot more presence. So I just decided, okay, this week I'm just going to play around with eating when I'm eating and reading when I'm reading. There's, a, there's actually a famous... Uh, uh, anecdote from Sun Tzu, the great Zen master, uh, who uh, passed away a number of years ago. He has uh, the uh, Empty Gate Zen Center is out of Sun Tzu's lineage, and uh, somebody came once uh, uh, who was staying at the place where Sun Tzu was living, and he was seeing him in uh, in the morning, and he was reading a newspaper as he was eating his breakfast, and they and this guy said. Uh, uh, um, Sansanim, uh, you always say to do one thing at a time. And, then, and when you eat, you eat. Or when you read, you read. You know, here you are, what are you doing? And Sansanim says, oh, and when you eat and read, just eat and read. <laughs> so I've always kind of used that as a little excuse. Well, if it's okay for the great Zen master, you know, then can be okay for me, but this week, just having the intention to say, okay, I want to try it a little differently, just as an experiment. And sometimes I'd forget, and the thing to remember is uh, not to get down on yourself for all the times you forget, but to feel really good anytime you succeed. And I was pretty um, surprised, pleasantly surprised, that just having that intention, saying, okay, I'm not going to, uh, I'm, as best I can, I'm not going to do this, it kind of 
stop me as I was reaching for the paper. No, I can just be here. Oh, I can just taste this food. It's pretty good. And it brought a whole different quality to, uh, to my experience in eating. So I'd like us just for a few moments to explore internally. Just go inside. And think of what habit you might like to work with. I asked you last week, and we'll just do it again. What habit that's not necessarily going to be such a radical shift that you know, it, will, it will take lifetimes to overcome? Just something to give you the muscle of discipline to see, oh, I have a choice here. I can stop, I can observe, I can choose, is this going to serve me or not? Just as a, a playful exploration. And have an image right now of yourself in that situation. And if you can get in touch with the fact this is not a pass-fail test, this is something that you're doing, as the Buddha suggested, to give yourself profound choice so that you move from the second noble truth to the third noble truth, from being caught up in the craving to giving yourself another possibility with no judgment when you forget it, none at all. That's where things get sticky, when you just beat yourself up. But just as an experiment for the curiosity of it, imagine what it would be like to give yourself the choice to see how much do I want to do this, or do I want to do it at all? And then play it out in your mind where you act wisely, either with moderation or uh, don't act on the craving. And imagine how that would feel. Remember, this is just to give yourself, it's really an empowerment to choose. And see if you can uh, get in touch with the intention to experiment this week, as only a handful of people did this, this last week. This is what can make your Dharma practice a living, a lived experience.
and it can be done really in a spirit of playfulness and fun and exploration as well as um, uh, profound discipline. Let me ask if you got something in your mind to experiment with and play with. Raise your hand. Good. Okay. Um, let's. Uh, I just want to open it up now to discussion, conversation, thoughts. Um, uh, we can just explore it together. Yeah. Here, just uh, and speak right into it. Like it's uh, an ice cream cone right uh, next to your lips. I, just <laughs> <laughs> I would like you to um, repeat what sober. Sober. sober oh what, yeah. What did it stand uh, for? Stop. Observe. Breathe. Expand your perspective, and respond wisely. Thank you. Yeah. What comes up for you as you? Experiment with this. Yeah, right behind you, over there. Usually in the evening when I'm answering phone calls or doing things, I tend to surf the internet at the same time I'm talking to people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to not do that. If I talk on the phone, I'm going to only talk on the phone and not read a book or read things on the internet or answer emails. <laughs> Big. Can anybody relate to <laughs> what she's saying? This is, and this is another one that I've explored within myself because, you know, I, I, I actually, it's important to me when I'm with somebody that I'm really with them, that I'm really present for them, but how easy it is when they're not visible to be splitting my time and it's not really, it's not what I want to do. So this is one that I have uh, experimented with myself and thank you for bringing that one up. If you have that habit, uh, that's a really good one to play with. Yeah. Um, my thing is similar to yours. When, I, when I'm eating my lunch, I do a crossword puzzle. I'm addicted to the New York Times crossword puzzles. Mm. And I have tried various um, ways of dealing with this, which I take a bite of food and pay attention to the bite of food, and then I look at the puzzle and pay attention <laughs> to, the, to the clue that I can't figure out. Uh, but it isn't long before that all breaks down, and I'm with <laughs> one hand shoveling in the food while with the other hand I'm trying to write in <laughs> the answers that I can think of. I'll keep working on it. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, I, I think it's a big step to just eat your bite and swallow before going to the next clue. You know, one, one thing at a time. If you, if you, uh, you know, if that's where you're at, then that's, that's okay. at least something. I'll take hope from, <laughs> from this. Here you go. Hi. Um, I've been noticing recently that in the mornings, um, 
I don't, I'm not working right now. And in the mornings, I want to enjoy the feeling of sort of not being awake and not being asleep and drifting off back to sleep and sleeping in, like sleeping in. Um, and it's causing me suffering because I do it, I'll push it way beyond any reasonable point. So even if I really have to go pee, I'll force myself to stay in bed so I don't ruin the feeling of sleeping in <laughs> <laughs> by letting my feet touch the, touch the floor. Or if I do have an appointment, I'll use the time sleeping in thinking of different ways I can delay or put off or miss the appointment and sort of worrying about like, what time should I call the person to tell them I'm running late <laughs> for it to be really that I'm running late rather than just trying to force myself to sleep in. So when you asked the question, um, I thought of something my mother used to say, which is, when the bell rings, just get up. And so I thought, okay, well, that's something that would, I think, would be really interesting to see, is to first of all, have a bell, whatever. <laughs> set a bell, find a bell and set it somehow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they and then try just getting up. <laughs> and and seeing, seeing, how, seeing if there is resistance to just getting up, if I have the choice yeah. to just get up. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, like I say, if you do it like a game, it, it changes for me. Doing practice, that's one of my main attitudes in practice. You know, instead of I'm going to be mindful and feel my breath, and it's like, oh, what does it mean to breathe? Let's check it out and have that attitude of playfulness, of just exploring then it stops being this onerous task and you're just checking it out like a you know like a little adventure little little game so i'd like to hear how it goes next week i'll let you know okay that's another thing just having some kind of accountability uh not as a pass fail but just oh somebody cares uh, can up the commitment Jim. Going back to something you earlier talked about in the evening about dopamine, I was interested to see a study that was done on a local jhana practitioner uh, where a psychologist from UC Davis went down to UCLA and hooked him up with the functional MRI. And when he got into the, you know, the rapture state, uh, the, all the dopamine buzzers go off. And so I'm thinking, well, so dopamine, is he getting addicted to these jhana states then? And does he have a down when he comes off of it? And does he need to meditate longer the next time to get the same <laughs> first, first time? And apparently the research says, no, you end up sort of resetting your, your the, the whole dopamine balance or the whole pleasure, happiness balance gets reset higher. Yeah, although th there it's very easy to get craving for concentration states. That does happen. And I know a lot of people who've given themselves a really hard time after they've tasted something delicious. There's a, there's a, a fine art with concentration between um, you can't, you can have the intention, but as soon as there's any kind of wanting that contraction gets in the way. And so it's more a matter of, at least that I've seen, um, letting myself be really uh, fully interested in the object or 
fully uh, surrendering and throwing myself into the experience. Because you can, and that's one of the big dangers that you know, classically uh, teachers warn against. Uh, the other side of it, though, is that if you have that capacity or you're familiar with that territory, the Buddha supposedly went into jhana uh, every night. And he said, in one of the discourses, it says, this is one pleasure I will allow myself to have. It was the one pleasure that he said, this is fine. Because it's an internal self, uh, it's an uncovering of what's already there instead of grasping for an external satisfaction. So they're both, they're both true. All the way in the back. Allie, you want to go? Oh, you should probably go after this. It's going back to the food uh -huh. issue. I actually, I'm in James's Awakening Joy class this year, and I had the experience of, of splitting the eating from reading when we were working on gratitude. Yeah, a little closer. Closer? Yeah. Um, so I had the experience of voluntarily separating reading from eating the month that we worked on gratitude in your Awakening Joy class because uh -huh. um, I love food and my husband and I put a lot of time and attention into making very delicious things to eat and then I would sit down and read <laughs> while I ate them yeah. and I realized that I was missing all of the pleasure that would come from that labor and attention um, and, and just the privilege of being able to eat such delicious food and not want. Um, and I haven't managed to pick up a book reading for a long time since having wow. that insight. So I was just thinking about it in the context of addiction and how gratitude is a very powerful mm. intervention. Mm, beautiful. And that's kind of what they're talking about, savoring the experience. I mean, there it is. Why not? Why not be here for the delicious flavor? I mean, it didn't have to be that way. It could have been just that, like you put gasoline in your tank. All right, food, this, is our, this is our fuel. But it has all of these flavors and, and colors and, and the sensual experience. Why not be here for it? Why, why get distracted somewhere else? So that's inspiring for me to hear, and I'm, I'm going to take it to, to heart. OK. so. Um, I encourage you this, this week, just as an exploration, keep working with something. Make this come alive so it's not just words and theory. And, uh, uh, we'll, uh, and, and do take a look at the, uh, at the issue. The article by Kevin Griffin on 12-step uh, Dharma is really an excellent one, too. And uh, I think I'd like to explore that with you. And then there's an also an article about uh, disconnecting from being plugged in from internet and, uh, and cell phones and all the ways that we are not connected with ourselves because we're connected externally. So uh, take a look at those two articles and we can uh, explore again next week. But right now, just... Uh, Connect with yourself, feel your own heart center,
take in kindness from around you. Let it open, touch your whole being. As you breathe it in, you breathe it out. And wish yourself well. May I see through the habit of craving and wake up to freedom. May I be very patient and compassionate with the process of waking up while being committed at the same time. May I have hold myself in loving kindness and share my love well. And then extending that out, may all beings be free of wanting and attachment. May all know the highest peace. May all share their love well. May all beings be happy. And may our coming here together be for the benefit of all. Thank you very much. Mm. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.